Amen. You may be seated and turn in your copy of the scriptures to Revelation chapter 3, this final book of the Bible, and this final letter to this church here in chapter 3 this evening. I'll read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's pray one final time and ask God's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough to reprove us and discipline us when we fall into sin. Without that reproof, we would continue shamelessly and foolishly in our sinful ways. And so as we come to this letter to the church in Laodicea, and as Jesus has has penetrated uh, this church with his judgment, but out of love, uh, desiring to see their repentance and, and renewed zeal for you and your ways. Might your spirit come and give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and may you penetrate our hearts to cleanse us uh, from any sin uh, that we might be harboring, to renew us and to confirm us uh, that we might conquer as, as we are exhorted in this text tonight. We pray you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may know the, the story about the emperor's new clothes. The story goes that there was an emperor, and he only spent his time trying on and buying new clothes. And instead of, of ruling his kingdom well, he was obsessed with his wardrobe. And so one day, two uh, swindlers came among the emperor and said, we can make you clothes that are only visible if you are worthy of your job. And the king thought this was great. He would be able to to tell who who was doing their job well in his kingdom, and so he hired these men to, to make these clothes. And as they started, he would uh, check on their progress and send some of his servants to uh, the swindlers there. And the servants uh, couldn't see the clothes because they didn't exist. Uh, But they were too ashamed to tell the king that they couldn't see it because that would mean that they weren't worthy of their job. And so uh, they, they would lie to the emperor. And finally, the emperor goes and looks himself, but he can't see the clothes either. And he's just as embarrassed, and he he doesn't tell anyone that he can't see the clothes. And so he plans this parade in which he's going to show off his new clothes uh, to his kingdom. And so the parade goes on, and, and he's dressed in his clothes, which aren't actually any clothes at all. 
And everyone is celebrating uh, the the king's new wonderful clothes because no one wants to uh, admit uh, that they can't see these clothes. Until finally one small child uh, yells out, but he hasn't got anything on. And pretty soon everyone realizes that they've been duped, including the emperor, and yet he's too embarrassed and continues uh, on the parade as if nothing happens. So here's this emperor who thought he was going to be richly clad and praised among his people, but the reality was the emperor had no clothes on. And as we come to Laodicea, you might say, well, that's a strange sermon introduction, but it is actually very analogous to what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. They boast of their, uh, that they are rich. They boast that they are prosperous and healthy. They're in need of nothing. But Jesus says they're miserable, they're pitiable, they're poor, they're blind, they're naked. And as they shamelessly boast their riches, Jesus, as it were, is saying, the, the emperor has no clothes on. Your boast is just air. And, and you better listen to me if you want to be truly clothed, as we'll see. If you want to be truly rich, if you want to be truly healthy. The church at Laodicea receives the most scathing and critical evaluation from our Lord. He has nothing and no one to commend about this church. It is the poorest, it is in the poorest spiritual condition of all the churches. And what's its folly? Jesus says they are lukewarm and self-deceived. Laodicea's evaluation of itself could not be more positive. We don't have need of anything. Jesus' evaluation of them could not be more negative. The church's wealth had created a self-righteous and spiritual tepidity. And so given the nature of this church's sin, its its self-deception, we must pay careful attention and ask the Spirit to give us ears to hear, lest we ourselves are guilty of such self-deceptive sins ourselves. So let's come to our outline now. It's familiar, but tweaked a little bit for this church uh, tonight. So number one, the church addressed. Laodicea was in ancient uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in location to some of the other churches or churches uh, that we know of from the Bible. It was about 60 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was 10 miles from Colossae, and it was only 6 miles from Hierapolis. Uh, a significant Jewish population was, was in this city since the year 200 B.C. And as we've seen with all the other cities, it was a thoroughly Greco-Roman city. That it had all the pantheon of gods you could, you could want in the ancient world. It had a Greek theater, it, it, it loved the Greek entertainment, it, it, it gladly submitted to Rome's rule, it, it, it gladly uh, uh, accepted Rome's forms of entertainment, including gladiator games that were held in this uh, city. We know more about this church in Laodicea and its founding uh, than any other church, actually, from the book of Colossians. That Paul says at the end there in Colossians chapter 4, talking about Epaphras, uh, who was with him now, but talking about Epaphras' prayers and and struggle for the church at Colossae, he says in in chapter 4, verse 13 of Colossians, I bear witness that he, Epaphras, has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. And so uh, there, there was a common association of these three congregations, and they were, they were very close to each other in terms of proximity. Uh, but it seems that they were connected by this man, Epaphras, uh, who is connected uh, and now a friend of Paul. And so Epaphras was likely the, the founding uh, 
person or evangelist or pastor, we're not quite sure his, his role, of this congregation in, in Laodicea. And Paul tells the Colossians that when this letter, Colossians, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul is saying that Laodicea received its own personal letter from the Apostle Paul at some point in their life. And, and also they, they would have read the book of Colossians because Paul says, uh, share your letters uh, with one another. And so they have an association with the Apostle Paul. They have association with this man named Epaphras. They have good roots, we might say. So if, if the book of Galatians is, is written in the end of the 50s, early 60s, and if the book of Revelation is written in the mid-90s, in a matter of 35 years, this congregation uh, has had a shift. Uh, that, that Paul doesn't seem to be correcting anything uh, in his letter to the Colossians there and seems to commend uh, this congregation. And so much has changed. So that's the, the church address. Second there, the characteristic of Christ that's emphasized. We noted that in these letters, Jesus would, would introduce himself with a characteristic that often came from that vision at the end of, the, of chapter 1 of the Son of Man. This is one of those uh, letters that the characteristic does not come from that vision. Uh, we see that some of it will come from chapter 1, just not that vision of the Son of Man. But, but the first one here is, doesn't come from chapter 1 at all. Jesus says the words of the amen. We say amen when we pray because we're, we're trying to affirm the truthfulness of what is said or, or prayed. And you may say that after someone else prays. It's, it's an agreement. Amen. And so Jesus calls himself the amen. And, and, and commentators note that there's, a, there's likely an allusion here to Isaiah 65, verse 16. In this passage, God, Yahweh, is speaking, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, it's translated truth, literally, the God of amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, or the God of Amen because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Interesting, Isaiah 65, commentators note, speaks to those who claim to belong to God but persist in wickedness. And so we, the amen addressed that uh, people there, and now the amen is addressing another people who are associating uh, with God, but actually are persisting in wickedness. It's also emphasizing Jesus' deity. Yahweh is called, the, the, uh, the Lord is called the God of Amen. And now Jesus says, I'm the Amen. And once again, time after time, Revelation is not shy about applying uh, Old Testament characteristics of God to Jesus, showing that He is God. This also emphasizes that Jesus is the, and, and that's why the, the ESV in Isaiah 65 translates it God's of tr God of truth, that Jesus is the one who speaks the truth. And so as he evaluates this church, he, he wants to remind, the Amen is speaking here. God Almighty, and he speaks what is true, and that comes in our, in our next characteristics. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, we've seen this faithful witness before in, Isaiah, uh, in Revelation 1, verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. And we noted then at that time that faithful witness, uh, amongst those uh, other cluster of, of allusions there, allude to Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 is all about the Davidic uh, uh, dynasty, the Davidic heir. And there is going to come a ruler who is the faithful witness. There is going to come a ruler who is the ruler of the kings on earth, who is the firstborn of the dead. 
And so Jesus is the faithful and true, true witness. He is David's offspring. He is the rightful ruler of David's throne. He is the true witness. He speaks what is true. Thirdly here, Jesus is called the beginning of God's creation. There's a, uh, commentators differ on the translation of this word beginning here. If we translate this word beginning, it would emphasize not that Jesus has a beginning. God, uh, John just called him God by calling him the Amen. He's not going to say that Jesus has a, a beginning. But once again, an allusion to uh, Psalm 89, where the firstborn of the dead, that Jesus is uh, the, the beginning of God's new creation, that, that he is uh, the first to die and come to life and live forever. He as the, the last Adam is inaugurating a new uh, kingdom. So it could be that, but I, I think more uh, appropriate here is to translate this word as ruler of God's creation. The, the word and the original can be translated equally uh, <clears throat> the same, so it's not a matter of the word used, it's just a matter of how it's used. And I think this is, this, we should go this way because this is more consistent with the context of the Old Testament allusion to Psalm 89 of Jesus as the faithful witness. Jesus as this Davidic throne, the firstborn of the dead. And so it's emphasizing Jesus' kingly rule, not, not so much his redemptive role as, as the Savior, although that is true. Secondly, I think that the theme of Jesus' kingship is in this letter. We'll see at the end of this letter, Jesus promises to the conqueror that they will sit on the throne with Christ. And so I think beginning and end of this letter is emphasizing Jesus as ruler. He is the king. And in fact, we see that Jesus is going to critique the Laodiceans. You, you are, you're co-opting with the kingdoms of this world. You're co-opting with the prostitute. And remember, I'm the rightful ruler. I am the ruler of the kings of the earth. I am the ruler of God's creation. And so bow to me. And so that's the characteristic of Christ emphasized. Thirdly now, in a different heading than you're used to, the correction of Christ. The correction of Christ. Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works. We've seen this uh, phrase throughout the letters. Jesus says, I know, I know, I know. That with his eyes as a flame of fire, Jesus evaluates each and every congregation and he knows the good and the bad. And usually this I know your works is followed by some sort of commendation. Some sort of a praise for the congregation. You're doing this well. That, that the churches in persecution, Jesus would sympathize. I know where you dwell. I know that you're in, you're in where Satan's throne is. I know your poverty. I know the persecution that, that you're facing. So Jesus sympathizes with congregations. He commends congregations. He knows their works. He knows their love, their faith. He knows their zeal for the truth, that they test those who, who call themselves apostles and are not. But here Jesus has no commendation. These benevolent omniscience turns to perceptive judgment. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And so we, we come now to his uh, correction. And we must see that this knowledge and correction of Jesus is a mercy that he reveals this to this congregation because they are self-deceived. They don't think there's a problem. And Jesus speaks. As one commentator notes, Christ knows the Laodiceans, but they do not know themselves. And so this is his, his correction of them. You are neither hot nor cold. 
This is probably one of the more memorable terms and phrases that, that come to us out of these letters. In fact, a few of these phrases uh, in here, and to this letter in particular, are very uh, memorable. And if <clears throat> someone quoted from the letters, they would probably quote this. Yeah, there's one common interpretation that, that we must uh, address here uh, because it doesn't quite stand to the, the historical reality. That when people see this a statement of you are neither hot nor cold, they note that Hierapolis, that we know was a neighboring city, was known for its warm and healing waters, while Colossae, another neighboring city, was known for its cold and invigorating waters. By the time the water reached Laodicea via the aqueducts, it was lukewarm and undesirable. So Jesus is saying that this church is just like your water su- supply. So that's how it, it goes. The water's coming hot, it becomes lukewarm. The water's becoming uh, cold, and it's becoming lukewarm. By the time it reaches uh, the Laodicea, it, it's, it's, it's undrinkable. The problem with this uh, interpretation is it doesn't quite stand up to the historical situation of Laodicea. All the other surrounding cities, and this is why, all the other surrounding cities uh, around Laodicea got their water of, via the aqueducts as well. And, and water that came from the aqueducts was considered good for drinking at this time. Furthermore, Laodicea's aqueducts did not originate from the northwest uh, where Hierapolis was, so they didn't come from Hierapolis, they came from the south. And so Laodicea had access to water from two rivers and two springs, the main one located five miles south of the city, a sophisticated network of channels, pipes, reservoirs, fountains supplied the city's needs. So it, it didn't come from Hierapolis, so uh, it's, it's problem, problematic for that uh, previous interpretation. Moreover, historical references note Laodicea's drinkable water, uh, even one inscription noting its sweet, clear water. Uh, so, so there's no historical information that tells us that Laodicea had undesirable water uh, that would, would just become lukewarm as it came to the city. So this connection that Jesus is calling this church uh, lukewarm because of its, its water, I mean, that's very interesting. It's very alluring of, a, of an interpretation, but it's, not, it's historically inaccurate and therefore not valid. Another interpretation we have to discuss uh, on hot is, and cold is, is this. Some people say Jesus is saying, I'd rather you you be hot or cold, meaning hot is a positive term and cold is a negative term. I I would rather you be white, hot, zealous for God, or I would rather you just be cold, uh, stone cold, dead. But you're lukewarm. The problem with that interpretation, the biggest one, is why would Jesus desire a church to be stone-cold dead? And isn't, and secondly, isn't his description of this church pretty much stone-cold dead? Could, could, could he desire that the church was in worse condition than it actually was? So instead of that, we should see hot and cold as both positive terms. That hot water was good because it cleanses, it provides a tonic when one is shivering from the cold. If you enjoy a hot bath or a hot tub, you, you, you know uh, the, the wonderful effects of hot water. And, and secondly, cold water refreshes, it enlivens, it invigorates. It, it's also a, a positive term. The point is both hot and cold water are useful. Lukewarm water is not useful. We, we like hot coffee, we like iced coffee. Nobody likes lukewarm coffee. Or if you do, I don't understand. But Lukewarm is not useful. 
So Jesus is saying, I wish you were hot or cold, meaning I wish you were useful. Uh, but you have become spiritually useless. And you're useless, he's using the imagery of, 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 of lukewarmness. Lukewarm is not useful. You're not useful, and your spiritual lukewarmness is nauseating to me, Jesus says, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's what he says. I would rather you, you, you have you hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And maybe our translation of spit is a little bit mild there. This word conveys violent expulsion, and some translations say vomit you out of my mouth. This harkens us back to, to the law in, in Leviticus 18, verse 24. Jesus, uh, uh, the Lord giving, or Moses, that is, giving the law here, says, do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. All the, all the, 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 the pagan practices of, of the, the original dwellers of, of Canaan. For by these, all the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Their sin was so bad that it's, it's, it, the land just vomited them out is the language that's used. And, and don't, don't you do the same things, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus is speaking here, but Moses says, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the land that was before you. And so there's a danger. You're about to be outside of the bounds of covenantal blessing. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth just as I would have, the land would have vomited out the inhabitants who made it unclean. And why? What is the cause of Laodicean's lukewarmness? It's, it's their boasting in their self-deception. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. This, this trifold boast. They boast of their riches. They boast of their prosperity. They say they have need of nothing. This is one commentator notes, they may have believed that their sp- healthy spiritual welfare was indicated by their economic prosperity. Look, we're wealthy. God has blessed us. Therefore, we must be doing great. And maybe of all these churches, they, they are of the most wealth. They have the highest paid pastors. They can afford to rent space. We have need of nothing. What a boastful statement for a church to say. We don't need anything. Thank you, Jesus. But Jesus couldn't have a different opinion from them. As they're boasting, we're rich, we're prosperous, we don't need nothing. Jesus says, in reality, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Now we have to remember that this letter isn't just going to Laodicea. It's going to all of these seven churches and and to all the church of Christ. And here's Laodicea, and, and they have this reputation, maybe, among the other churches. Of, yeah, they are. Look, look, they're, they're, we look to them. They, they provide us all the resources. And here's Jesus publicly saying, you're actually naked. You're actually blind. You're actually poor. And the shame that that would cause to them 
And in and, and, and Greco-Roman art, you know, nudity was, 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 was something to be praised. But this, this contrasts that, that it's, it's shameful to not be clothed. That Adam and Eve were, 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 were clothed after, after they fell. Remember that, that the curse of Ham comes onto him because he, he saw his father's nakedness. It's, it's shameful uh, to be exposed like this. And they're being exposed. And Jesus is critiquing this church for assimilating and being made drunk by their affluence, which has led to their spiritual poverty. Now, Jesus doesn't say they're drunk, but it seems that they have become apathetic. And I say the word drunk because uh, this line here ironically sounds very similar to the boast of the prostitute prostitute that we meet later in the book of Revelation. That in Revelation chapter 18, in in, in bringing the the judgment on this great prostitute, the great harlot, that in chapter 18, verse 7 says, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Not the same words, but, but here, is this, here is this woman uh, saying, I'm untouchable. I'm a queen. I'm not a widow. I'll never see mourning. I, I will always be in this state. I, I, I have reached... The apex. And I think there is a contrast, ironic, a a very similar statement that this church is saying, we're rich, we're prosperous, we don't have need of anything. And what's the critique there in in Revelation 18? The, the, The woman, the harlot, has made the world drunk with her sexual immorality. And that the merchants of the earth have have used her wicked ways to gain wealth. And I think there is some sort of connection here and and some sort of a comparison, which is very uh, alarming and should be to to this church as they receive this. So that's the correction of Christ. Let's see now, fourthly, the counsel of Christ. So Jesus says, is critiquing them for co-opting in some ways with the woman, with the ways of the world, with her worldly wealth. And so then Jesus says in, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me, and he'll, he'll name three things. So Jesus says, I'll counsel you. And might I say, if Jesus counsels us to do something, it's probably a good thing that we do it. And he counsels them to buy. And I think there's a contrast here. You're commercing with the world, and you think you're getting rich, but you need to commerce with me if you want to be rich. And this, this harkens and alludes for us to, to Isaiah 55 there in, in verse 1. Of Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Yahweh in that text is inviting people without the means to buy it to come buy things from him. And so Jesus is doing the same thing here. You've tried to buy things, and it's only led to your, your, your spiritual uh, lukewarmness. But come, buy from me. And there are three things Jesus names here. First, buy from me gold refined by a fire. The sign, a very valuable uh, metal. And refined by a, a, a fire. Could, could signify the purification of, from sin. It could, could signify the effect of tribulation. It has this purifying effect. When we think of getting gold from Jesus, we thought of uh, the Jesus' parable of the treasure in the field, hidden. 
It's like a, it's like a person who found treasure hidden in a field, and he, and he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. What's the point? Whatever Jesus offers us is of more value than anything uh, this world and its gold can offer us. It's far more valuable, far more enriching than anything in this world. So Jesus says, come, buy from me. I'm counseling you. Instead of buying things from the world that will not get you anywhere, buy from me real gold refined in the fire. Secondly, Jesus says, you can buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. You are exposed as naked. Buy from me white garments. And we've met white garments before in chapter 3 of verse 5. Jesus promises the conqueror at Sardis will be clothed in white garments. White symbolizing purity, holiness, righteousness. Jesus can remove the shame and guilt of our sin. We've not gone too far. Jesus is telling this church, you've not gone too far. You can still be clothed in white if you come and buy it from me. Thirdly, Jesus says, buy salve, eye salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You don't see right now. You are spiritually blind. Buy from me salve and you will see. Once again here there's a common uh, interpretation of the eye salve that we must discuss. That many commentators uh, would note, at least older commentators, would note that uh, there was, this is a reference uh, to a medical school that was in Laodicea, located 13 miles outside of the city at a temple. And this medical school treated many disorders, and it had an ophthalmologist, and so uh, there was this local pride in their, their eye treatments that you could get uh, from this medical school. And so Jesus critiques the local pride in the medicine. You, you, you have pride in your medical school. You really should, should buy uh, true eye salve from me. The problem with that such specific of a referent to Laodicea is that eye salves were actually produced throughout the Roman Empire. And in fact, some people made their own eye salves for various treatments of, of different disorders or things. And eye salves were not particularly or necessarily tied to medical schools. And secondly, as one writer notes, no, no, no known source says that Laodicea had a reputation for producing eye salve. And in fact, other cities were at least as well known for their, their medicine and their medical schools. We, we saw one there in Pergamum that they had the cult of Asclepius. Uh, that people would come and, and be healed. Ephesus was, was known for, for, for medicine as well. And so those who want to see it as a very specific reference to, to Laodicea are, are overstating the case, but that doesn't mean there's nothing here. And this is what another commentator notes. He says, the image of eye salve is valuable because it would have been commonly understood, not because it was uniquely tied to Laodicea. So it's not unique to Laodicea, but this would have been a practice of of being in use throughout the empire, and so Jesus is using this common imagery. You would put eye salve to help ailments in your eyes. Jesus says, I can help your spiritual blindness. Buy this from me, and you will see. And then he reminds this church, verse 19, those whom, I, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's an amazing statement. Jesus just called them wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And then he says, I just want you to be reminded, 
Those whom I love, I reprove. And see the mercy of Christ. He doesn't just reach. You guys should know better, and I'm just going to reject you. You, you, you had the truth, and you reject it. I'm just going to let you know. He, no, he comes to them. He offers repentance and forgiveness, and he says, I'm doing this because I love you. So he says, be zealous and repent. Interesting, he adds this word of zeal here, to be t- intensely serious about something. <clears throat> and I think this gets back to their, he doesn't call them drunk, but this spiritual relaxed, they are spiritually relaxed. They're just in, in a party mindset. They're not zealous. They're not intensely focused. They're not committed to the things of God. They just think everything is great and, 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 and we're doing well and we just don't need to uh, be so, so committed. And so Jesus says, be zealous. Wake up. Get, get some zeal. Get some commitment and, and address these things and repent. <clears throat> So Jesus is offering forgiveness to a church gone so far. Fifth now in our outline, the consolation for heeding. This is another famous verse from this passage. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And eat with him and he with me. Once again, see the mercy of Christ here. This is a church that is very compromised. It is lukewarm and Jesus says, I'm here for fellowship. I'll fellowship with you. So let's look at this image of Jesus standing at the door. First of all, it's, it's, it's strange and it's really disheartening. Here is a church of Christ and Jesus is outside knocking on the door saying, can, can I come in? And he's talking to individuals here too, but he is talking to the whole church. What a, what a, what a, a grave image this is of Jesus outside. The church is doing their church things, but Jesus is knocking at the door. So what does it mean? What is this uh, banquet that Jesus is promising here? Some look to the end of Revelation, to that that great banquet to come, where where it tells us, blessed are those who, who, who are invited to this great banquet. Revelation 19.9 Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the, of the Lamb. And so there is this coming end time ba- uh, final banquet where we'll feast with the Lord Jesus and, and be with Him uh, forever as His bride. So some things it's a reference to that and, and, and I've that's fine, and I think it can, ultimately. But I think there's some more present and immediate reference that Jesus is promising. Some more immediate uh, fellowship that Jesus is offering to this church here and now, even before that. That they, they, that they are only real Christians, and they are only a real church if Jesus is present among them. And in fact, Jesus has given us a supper uh, that Jesus promises to be present among us. The the Lord's Supper. And and that supper points to uh, the future banquet to come where we will feast uh, with Christ. And and, and the Lord's Supper is, is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. There is a real communion with Christ that occurs through this supper. So I think that's a, at least a, a, some reference there. But the Christian life is one of being uh, in Christ. 
that, that his life is, is work through us, that we are in fellowship with Christ, that Christ as a church is present among us. Jesus promises where two or three are gathered in his name. He is there. And so to be a true Christian church, you must have true fellowship with Christ. And Jesus is offering that. He's saying, I'm at the door. And if you, if you open the door, I'll come in and we will dine together. We will enjoy fellowship with one another. Once again, here is Jesus' mercy to this church who's so infatuated with the world and so complacent towards him, but he's saying, I'll dine with you. What else is promised? Jesus says in verse 21 to the conqueror, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with with my father on his throne. Not only does he he promise this fellowshipping, Jesus promises these lukewarm Laodiceans that they will be fellow uh, rulers with Christ in eternity. And it reminds us, how do we conquer? We conquer as Jesus has conquered. You'll sit with me on my throne as I conquered and I sat with my Father on His throne. And so it reminds us of the Gospel again that we don't conquer, we don't overcome in this world on our own strength. We overcome by the power of Christ that He gives to us by the Gospel because He conquered. We conquer by faith. And likely this is a climactic reference here in all of the letters, that the last image of conquering uh, here is, is the promise to us is you will reign. You will reign with Christ if you overcome. That's every Christian is a conqueror. And you're a conqueror in Christ. And, and if you continue, if you persevere, uh, you will reign with Christ forever. And what a promise to us. And what a promise to this church, even in grave spiritual condition that Jesus gives. What a consolation. And lastly tonight, number six, the connection to our lives in church. Four points of application here. Number one, our perception of our spiritual health and life may not be the true reality. Our perception of our spiritual health and life may not be the true reality. The Laodiceans said, we're rich, we've prospered, we don't need anything. Jesus says, you're wretched, you're poor, you're pitiable, you're blind, you're naked. They were deceived. We can be deceived of our own spiritual state. We can think that we are spiritually great. And we could be spiritually impoverished. And the point here is not to say that we can never truly know our spiritual state, but the point is we must evaluate ourselves soberly. Think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, 3. But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, Corinthians, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against me, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says, I evaluate myself. I don't think that, that there's anything going, I've done anything wrong here. But you know what? That doesn't mean I'm off the hook because the Lord is the judge. And, and, and we must keep that in mind as we soberly evaluate our, our spiritual health, health. And this is where other saints, more mature saints, that, that can speak into your life and, and evaluate your spiritual condition are, are helpful. But we see here a whole church is self-deceived. And so it's an exhortation that any church should not be an isolated church. That we must associate with one another and, and be able to speak to each other's spiritual life and health. And from the outside, you can see things sometimes that are missed on the inside. 
So our perception of our spiritual health in life may not be the true reality. Secondly, any church is capable of sliding into spiritual tepidity where Jesus is pushed outside the church. Any church is capable of sliding into spiritual tepidity where Jesus is pushed outside the church. Here's Laodicea. It had a rock-solid apostolic foundation. That this man, Epaphras, Paul calls a beloved fellow servant in in Colossians 1. He calls Epaphras a faithful minister of Christ. This man, Epaphras, is approved by Paul. This man, Epaphras, Paul says, struggles for the health of these churches. Is, it cares for these churches. Uh, they had a, 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 at least one individual among them that was a spiritually mature person and, and gave his heart and life for their spiritual health. They had their own personal letter from the Apostle Paul. Very few churches in the the history of the Christian church have a personal letter from the Apostle Paul. They had other fellowship with churches around them, Colossae, Hierapolis. And in a matter of 35 years, Jesus has been pushed outside of this congregation. And I think if they were at that spiritual state, then Paul would have said something about that. But he doesn't. He seems to commend this congregation. So a church with such a solid foundation in a very short period of time can, can become so lukewarm. It can happen to any congregation, even this congregation. I'm sure it's not true of just this place, but if you drive around Pittsburgh, there are a lot of empty church buildings. Building after building after building. And and, and in most of these cases, I'm assuming that some gospel church existed there at at some point. Uh, But now, in many of these buildings, they don't exist. And they're, they're becoming doctor's offices and restaurants and, and bars and, and other things. And the point of this isn't to defend church buildings, but to say that those empty buildings are a, a haunting reminder that a church can slide into spiritual lukewarmness, which left unchecked can lead to a church dis, disappearance. So we must guard against the hubris that says it can't happen here. And soberly and faithfully prevent such a slide. Thirdly, see the mercy of Christ. How merciful is Jesus to this congregation? As I noted before, he could have treated them a lot differently He could have just outright rejected them. You you rejected me so quickly. How could you? Goodbye. I'm not knocking at the door. I'm leaving. See Jesus' mercy in all of these letters. So many of these churches had great spiritual compromise. They should have known better. Jesus in his anger could just let them go. But he doesn't. In every letter, repent. Repent, repent, and I'll give you eternal life. As we sung, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus, our Lord. He's truly the meek and lowly. So so amidst this glaring judgment, don't miss the mercy of Christ here. This is a mercy of Christ. 
And amidst your own conviction of sin, don't miss the mercy of Christ. You may think, I just messed up again and again. Can Jesus still keep loving me? Yes! Be zealous. Repent. I reprove those whom I love. And maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you think, well, you don't know my life. You don't, you don't know what I've done. Jesus couldn't possibly love me. He couldn't possibly forgive me. Well, the Apostle Paul, the man whom we've discussed some tonight, said, I was the chief of sinners. I wanted Christians dead. And that's what I was committing my life to. And God showed mercy to me. And if he shows mercy to me as the foremost of sinners, he can show mercy to you. Jesus died for sinners, not for saints. He died for sinners to make them saints, because we can't be saints on our own. And Jesus says, come buy from me. Come buy gold. Come buy white garments. Come buy eye salve that will heal your, your spiritual blindness and be saved. You will reign. He promises to these compromised church here. You will reign with me. And the same is to anybody who believes in his name, including you tonight. Fourthly, these letters call for spiritual, serious spiritual inventory. This last application is sort of by way of application of all these letters. What do we do with this? Which would be our biggest question we ask. Well, it's as we noted, what is the center of these letters? Chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus says, I want all the churches to know, I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. Jesus has searched the minds and the hearts of these churches for us. And Jesus, standing among the lampstands, is still searching the minds and hearts of his churches today. And he's rendering to each according to his works. And so that means that that we should... At, at times, have serious spiritual inventory. And maybe now is a great time for you as you have all of these letters and all of what they teach and, the, and, the, and they're laying out of the temptations in the Christian life. Ask yourself, do some spiritual inventory. Where am I? What sin have I compromised with that I need uh, to do some serious spiritual work? Where has the Spirit pricked me in these letters and is calling me uh, to work? And maybe there is a time of, of, of spiritual, uh, of, of real fasting that you need to do to, to ask God to evaluate your heart. And this is important for us to do at times in our Christian lives. It's important to do personally. It's also important to do corporately as a church evaluates its own spiritual health. And so we must give ourselves at times to serious spiritual inventory and ask that the Spirit would give us eyes to see. So, so as we close this section on the book of Revelation, they ask the Lord to work in your heart by His Spirit to evaluate our hearts and purify us and strengthen us and help us to be faithful, that that we might continue to turn from what is bad and and hold fast uh, to what is good. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that though we are so spiritually fickle 
and frail at times. You are merciful. You are patient. You are kind. You, you offer us uh, the mercy of seeing our sin. So many live without any conviction of their sin. Their conscience seared. And that's a form of judgment. Where any of us who experience conviction of sin, that's a mercy. And we thank you for that, Lord. We, we ask for your mercy to continue by your Spirit to evaluate our hearts and conform us to the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.